Hi, everyone. I'm Christina, and this is the Bird Girl Society podcast. Thank you so much for listening in. I'm sorry I'm a little late on these episodes. I missed one last week. I have been down with the stomach bug, and but I'm right back at it today. Not that you probably needed to know that, but I thought I'd share. Uh, so in today's episode, we have Dr. Nathan Smith with the Cambridge Research Institute. Uh, you've probably caught him on Brian's podcast or the Bet Free Life. Uh, he's a researcher, and and it's his job to to do research and studies and try and find ways to help us problem gamblers. And so it's always a great conversation to have with him. He actually sent over a study for us to go through from 1947. It's something that he had come across in his own research for um, his work with veterans and uh, gambling addiction. And so what was interesting and fascinating about this study, which you can find uh, linked in the show notes, it's a study from John Hopkins, I believe, is kind of the behaviors that are showing up in this study in 1947 are similar behaviors that I experienced myself when I was gambling. And that was just fascinating to me. It was also really fascinating how they break down um, male and female roles of gambling. And I can see some similarities, but it's it was just it's a really interesting read. So he walks us through kind of that research paper and and we have a conversation about that. And then we also talk about comorbidity and gambling addiction. And comorbidity is, you know, cross um, mental health issues, whether it's bipolar, anxiety, depression. Um, you know, there's so many of those things that can tie up even physical illness and gambling addiction. A lot of times will go hand in hand along with other addictions. So it was just really overall a great conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Let me give my shout out to Gamban uh, for sponsoring the podcast, for being the wonderful people that they are. If you are struggling with online gambling, go to gamban.com, download that software, put those blockers up and start your recovery. Uh, you got to stop the bleeding, start the healing. And I promise you it does get better. Uh, so let's roll on into this episode. So for this episode, we are here with Dr. Nathan Smith, who is the executive director of the Kynebridge Research Institute. Hi, welcome. Hey, Christina. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So before we get into our, like our talk, do you want to kind of just share a little bit about what Kynebridge Research Institute does and how it relates to gambling harm? Yeah. So I guess I'll start by talking about um, the Kynebridge, Kynebridge Behavioral Health, which is the for-profit telehealth side of the company. And that is a, a kind of normal, fully running telehealth clinic for gamblers and gamers specifically. And there's all sorts of um, folks you know maybe that have been involved in that. Uh, Mark Lefkowitz and uh, Leah Nauer and Lori Rugel and all kinds of folks you may be familiar with um, have had a role in, in spinning up Kindridge Behavioral Health. So that's the for-profit side and I work on that side. So I work on the science part of everything, right? That's always why I'm in the room. I'm not a clinician. Um, I'm not there for my business expertise, that's for sure. Um, but I'm always in the room to do science. Um, so if I'm in a room, science is happening generally. So on the Kymish behavioral health side, there's all kinds of things that need to be done. You know, there's ways of um, seeing how folks treatment is progressing. Um, there's a lot of measurement issues. We want to make sure that folks who come to us, that we get a good baseline for data for what's happening in their lives, a nice view of what's happening in their lives in a way that's complete. 
And we can track that over time and see how they get better, how the treatment specifically uh, benefits them, if something works better than others, some other thing, um, how they're interacting with their clinician, how they feel about their clinician, right? All of this data, all of this measurement that happens. And the goal is really that as more folks come to Cambridge Behavioral Health, um, the data that we're generating makes the clinicians better, it makes the treatments better, it makes our ability to link clinician and patient better and treatment and patient. Um, and it really, so we should be making everything better. I mean, that's the whole point of gathering the data, right? Is we want to get better at every piece of it. Every time we look at the data, we want to learn something new. We want to find um, a way to do things better. And so um, all of that is at Cambridge Behavioral Health. So that's on the for-profit side. I'm also the director, right? Because that's, yeah, because that's really easy and doesn't take much time. So don't worry about it, right? <laughs> but on the nonprofit side, I'm the executive director of the Cambridge Research Institute and KRI, um, as I said, is the nonprofit, and we do all of the um, all of the nonprofit research. So we do some of the work. We fund some of the work that's happening um, with some partners, like Lee and Nauer at Rutgers and, and others, to try and improve treatment. And we also do sort of outward facing. I, I think of it as kind of like internal and external, right? So internal is everything we do to improve treatment for the for um, behavioral health, and external is all the stuff we do. And our, our big external program right now is with veterans. And so we have uh, three programs with a fourth starting as it relates to veterans um, with the, the biggest one called uh, 50X for Vets, which is our program to increase the rate of research for veterans treatment with gambling disorder by about 50 times in the next four years. And this just came from, you know, me going through the literature and going, wow, look at this, look at that. And as it turns out, there have only been two studies of treatment outcomes for veterans in the past 25 years. And two studies in 25 years is not enough for the treatment providers to really um, to really benefit and be able to improve the care that, that's occurring. I mean, so the folks who are actually doing the work day in and day out, they can improve because they're learning, but everybody else in the country, and really there's only two places in the US that does this full time. Um, so there's, there's the, uh, the VA in Ohio and Cleveland and the VA in Las Vegas. And so they're the only two inpatient places for vets and everybody else has to do outpatient. So there's a lot of information there, um, a lot of things that are interesting there. And we're trying to harness that expertise, that data, get it published in peer reviewed journals and shipped out so that everybody in the country can benefit from it. And also to increase the, re the rate of research by 50 times in four years, because you know these little, a small increase would be nice, you know, if you improve by three or 4%, but three or 4%, a year when you only have two papers in 25 years is not going to get it done. You've got to do something big, right? So that's where 50X for Vets came from. And there's a number of other veterans um, related programs. And so that's kind of the broad overview of what we um, of what we do. But I'm here, you know, I'm here to talk about whatever it is you want to talk about, Christina. You know, you we're here together. So what is it uh, that you're interested in or, or what would you like to talk about? Well, when I initially um, talked to you on the Bet for Your Life, with Brian Hatch, um, you know, we, we had a really great conversation walking through a study, right? And what always fascinates me, especially as I get further along in my own recovery, is just kind of how these studies work, how this information is gathered, um, you know, that, that helps, that helps uh, all of us in the recovery community, you know, how, how clinicians get the data that they need to see, how they can best serve the recovery community. Um, so one of my biggest things 
early on was I would see these surveys, right. That, that are sent out and these questions are on these surveys are just ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. And I wonder who's the person behind who thought how important it is in 2021 to ask about morality and gambling. Like, so I, I look at these things and I'm just, I'm always curious about that side of things. Like how, how are they getting the data? Because for me, I really feel like women are misrepresented in the data. Um, and I love to see that, like, there's more talk about, you know, sports betting because it's, it's on the rise. Right. And so it's, it's actually opening up a lot of conversations about gambling harm. Um, same with veterans. Um, I love the work that Dave from the fall in podcast does. Um, I've had a lot of military and veterans reach out to me too. Um, I love that work, but I'm still not seeing women represented in this, you know, in this gambling addiction world. And so it's like, that's always kind of on the forefront of every conversation I have is how can we best represent women and help them, help them the best we can. Um, so you did send me a study from 1947, right? I did, I did do that. And what I found most interesting. Yeah, if I could just say by way of introduction, I'm giving a talk at NCPG on, because it's kind of like, why are you reading a study from 1947? That's not, you know, it's not super up to date literature, which is true. Because uh, it's, you know, it's a several years before my dad was born. Um, but I'm giving a talk at NCPG on uh, veterans and a little bit on some of the veterans and gambling treatment space um, in general, but a little bit on what we're doing at Kindridge. Um, and part of my process is to just go back and read like just any weird, random, old thing I can find. I've got Dr. Custer's book, which is um, uh, Dr. Robert Custer, who, who was the head of the VA gambling program at um, in Ohio going all the way back, I believe he started collecting data in 1964. Um, so very, very early on. So anything like that. And that's what brought me to this, um, to this study because there's a little, it's, it's less of a study and really just sort of a, a Freudian psychiatrist of the 1940s, just sort of pontificating about his feelings about gambling disorder and where it comes from. And so there's a lot of sort of odd Freudian stuff, but there was a paragraph on women. And I thought, you know, Christina, who, who, takes a special interest in this might be interested. And so I offered to send it and did send it. Um, and so that's, you know, by way of introduction, that's sort of how we got to this point. Yes. And what was interesting about this, this article, I found this article completely fascinating, by the way. Um, I'm not somebody that does, it might surprise people listening. I'm not somebody that really stays up on like articles and science stuff. But um, what was fascinating about this was on this paragraph where it talks about, um, uh, you know, women in connection with, with gambling in 1947, it talks about like the mannerisms. They say that women who are taking part, um, I don't have my glasses, but they have more masculine mannerisms. Right. And what's interesting about this article is, um, like it says in roulette, which is entirely a game of chance. Women are present but is that psychosexual? Am I reading that right? Differences are barely recognizable. The women expect and receive no special courtesies or, or attention. 
There is no flirtation at the gambling table. And when I read that, my first instance of that was it's very opposite to what the movies make it out to be, right? Like it's very, um, you know, in, in the movies, women women are really sexualized when it comes to gambling. And um, I think when you, when you look at that, you know, that kind of adds like excitement to gambling when you, when you see it in the movies or something like that. But when you read it in this and the actual like something that's fact-based, right? Where it shows that it really wasn't that kind of an atmosphere. It was actually more. And so I thought that that was extremely interesting. What was your take on that particular part of the article? Yeah, it is interesting. Um, so this whole, this whole piece is so overwhelmingly Freudian that it's, it's like almost like there are parts that are just straight crass and just straight off-putting where you're like, I'm not really sure what to do with yeah. this. Um, I guess I, I guess we should say, um, just for those of you keeping score at home, if you really want to look it up, um, the author is Ralph R. Greenson, G-R-E-N-S-O-N, and it's from American Imago, I-M-A-G-O, in April 1947, uh, and it's called On Gambling. And actually, if you are interested and just want a copy and don't want to look for it, you can always email me, Nathan at kindbridgeinstitute.org. I respond to emails and want to talk to you and want to hear from you. So always you can reach out to me at Nathan at kindridgeinstitute.org. Um, I'm always happy to talk to folks. So it's really interesting because how much of this is kind of like Freudian nonsense and how much of it is reflecting this, this uh, doctor's experience. A lot of the, the work that he talks about throughout is happening in the, the 20s and the 30s. And he, he went away for the war for World War II. And so some, there's some military uh, things in there, um, but it's hard to separate that. So I guess what, what would be most interesting to me is, does it ring true to you? You know, someone who has gone through the experience who knows a lot more women gamblers than I do. Is there a part of this, this process or, or gambling? So of course there were no slot machines um, like we have today back then. So the games were more cards-based or dice-based or roulette, you know, things like that. Is, was there an anti-femininity? Is there an anti-femininity in gambling or in these games? I don't know if it's necessarily like anti-femininity. I think it's just like, there's no difference. You know, it's not like it's, it's not like the women are, are, um, I would say, I don't even know if over-sexualized is the word. It's not like it's, it's, it's really acknowledged. Just, um, I would say for a lot of the women in the community that I've met who have been sports betters or, um, you know, played roulette or cart preferred action gambling, um, they were definitely kind of like, and I'm not going to throw everybody in this category, but I would say a majority of them are definitely kind of the tomboy or kind of like, you know, the that kind of side of things or that kind of action of things, you know, whereas on the, on the, the slot machine side, it was definitely more social. Like, uh, I, I mean, I would get, I would guess the action is social too, like kind of like the camaraderie or whatever that you can get at the tables. Um, but yeah, I could definitely see a difference between a slot player versus like, like a woman that was, more into the action gambling. Um, and another, and, and that's really interesting too, when you see that, because even in the recovery side of things, they tend to be more comfortable in like the, um, mixed group of, of like male, female recovery rooms. They're more comfortable in those type of rooms. Um, whereas people that were like women who mainly played slots like myself, 
are more comfortable in a women's preferred room. So I, I do kind of see the difference there um, in how they, the games that they played uh, kind of, they're more, they're okay being in a, in a recovery room with men. Um, so again, we can't categorize everybody like that, but I can definitely see it in reflection to this. Um, another thing that was really cool about this, this article though, is there, there were a lot of cool things, but, um, so this really would be an interesting read for anybody who's, who's, um, up for something like this. Um, well, the, the, the wording was quite crass on a lot of things. It says, I don't even know if I should talk about them, but <laughs> I don't know how sensitive people are listening, but it says queens are often referred to as whores, like when in the, in the example of, of games and things like that. So it's like, um, kind of interesting, but one of the things that, that really stood out to me was they were talking about the superstitions and the magical rituals of gambling in this article. And as any gambler listening um, would know that, that that is a big part of the gambling world. Um, one of my most commented on episodes was an was a rituals episode where we talked about gambling rituals. Brian and I did one on the Bet Free Life. I got a lot of feedback on that one too. Um, just talking about those little habits that we did that we thought would make our our gambling experience luckier or or whatever. And and it's just so interesting to know that we're like we're smart people, right? But we think by standing a certain way and pushing a button a certain way that the machine's going to pay out better, right? But the thought process back in 1947 versus where we're at in 2022 really hasn't changed much in that aspect. And I thought that was really interesting. It's, yeah, it's interesting to me how, like how successful you think he was in describing things. Because so for me, looking at it, we've moved, we're multiple generations past this kind of, you know, kind of crass Freudianism. Um, we're, you know, we were, well, how long has it been? It's been 80 years or something. The, so it's, it's really, it's interesting because the modern sort of medicalized psychiatry is much more, um, much more kind of clean and bright and medical and neat corners and shiny edges, right? And putting people in categories. And there's, I can see why it's gone in that direction. And I think it's, it certainly is a benefit um, for collecting data on the whole, it's a benefit. Because if you read this article, there would be no way to collect data based on this because it's this sort of, just sort of like a, just a, a crass free, th like free thought coming from this. Um, but it's amazing. Um, to me to hear you say how on the nose it is. Um, if I could bring up, so I, so I, I don't have the study um, right at hand in my mind, but there was a study that separated uh, the uh, chemical addiction, the actual chemical from the, from the behavior. And let me, I'll just explain that. So um, I think it was with tobacco. So there's so much um, ritual with all different um, addictions, right? Um, for, you know, I, I don't know if there's trigger warnings at the top of this, but I'm going to talk about a couple, you know, ways that people use heroin or, um, you know, or tobacco. So if that's not going to work for you, then this is a good time to bail out. 
Um, but with the process of, you know, using heroin injecting, there's, it's very, very ritualistic with, you know, the, um, the vein and all of the paraphernalia you need and the, the space you are and what you do to your arm and then what you do to the drug. And it's very sort of plotting ritualistic um, and it's bit by bit by bit by bit, right? And it builds until that moment when the you have the actual, you know, if you inject or if you snort where the, the rush comes. But there's this slow, and when I've heard you and Brian talk about it, it's kind of similar, you know, Brian, went through um, on the, the last episode, I think that I was on, he talked about, you know, going to the parking lot and walking around at the top of the casino and then buying a pack of cigarettes. It's, it's this very sort of ritualistic piece. But the, the study I'm thinking of now is, there's a researcher who separated nicotine from the process. So they had, you could, they were, they gave um, habitual smokers the choice, or I think they, maybe they randomized them, I don't remember, but you, you had either cigarettes that had no nicotine in them, so you, you could do all of your processes, all of your rituals and get the feeling, but you weren't getting the chemical or uh, you, could, you could get the chemical without the feeling. So you could somehow, maybe some type of um, injectable, I don't remember what they used, but something, some way to get our nicorite gum maybe to get the chemical, um, but not the, not the ritual. And my recollection of the study is that most folks preferred the cigarettes with no nicotine. Interesting. And actually when we yeah, asked, so when people could choose, it was, they wanted to have, you know, you buy that my uncle who was also a heroin addict was a smoker. And so, you know, he would buy the cigarettes and then he would, you know, he would slap them really hard against his palm. And then he would open the, you know, open the little plastic and slowly open the, you know, the top. And it was very ritualistic. And it seems that there's a part of this. So part of this thing that we call addiction is the, the place where these rituals meet the, these chemical changes. And there's um, part of that is where the, um, I don't want to call it power. I think that's too much, but that's some of the draw, some of the, um, the, the piece of addiction, whatever it is that gets folks into trouble comes from where that, that um, ritual meets the, the chemical changes that are happening. It's almost like, I would call that as weird as it might sound. I would almost call that like the comfort of the process. Almost like I can kind of like visualize it in my own experience as just comforting to be doing the same thing over and over. Like, um, like I know, I think I, somebody said something like if you watch the same shows all the time or listen to the same music all the time, a lot of times that's like a, a an anxiety response because you already kind of know what to expect. Like, you know, kind of what the next thing is going to be. So there's no. Um, yeah, so it's kind of like, and which is very true for me. Like I watch the big bang theory every day. Like, I don't think there's an episode I've missed. Um, but so I kind of, kind of feel like comfort would be in the aspect of just doing the same ritual, but I was, I was thinking back on my gambling and kind of what my ritual was. Um, and for me, it was just, just knowing that on payday, you know, like I was going to, pull, pull my cash out. And I was going to go, um, sit in the same spot at the same machine and just play my characters away. Or in my case, like just add them up later. Um, so yeah, I can kind of, I can really kind of connect to that. And even here in this article, it talks about like, just, just kind of the, the other things, you know, not necessarily the rituals, but like the, the, luck, change of luck, like changing chairs. Um, 
you know, having them change the deck of cards, having, having good luck charms, um, you know, rubbing the machine, um, sitting at the same machine every week or, um, your favorite waitress, even having your favorite waitress there that night is, is something that always felt lucky to me. Or, you know, like I said uh, earlier, pulling into a spot that's close up was something that felt lucky to me. Like it was just, it was a sign of some sort. And I think, you know, with all, with all the conversations I've had with a lot of gamblers, it's just, um, kind of the same things, you know, they all had their own, their own ticks and, and things like that. Um, so- can I ask, have you, does that follow you to other non-gambling parts of your life where you have routines or you have things that you do habitually that are, you know, I can't psychoanalyze you. I'm not a clinician. I'm just curious as you know, Nate is just curious basically um, if that's universal to you or is it specific to the gambling? No, I think, I think it is like, and I don't know if it's just habits that I built. Cause I, I look at my pre gambling life and it didn't feel like it was that way, but my post gambling life, it feels like I get in the car. Um, I have the same routine I need to, um, like my drive home is my decompress or my drive to the gym is my decompress. And I, I listen to the same playlist that's on my phone. Like I don't change out the songs very much because it's my play- playlist. It's in my car. It's the playlist that I'm going to work out to. Um, same songs. Just like I said, I come home. I'll usually, if I don't come into a meeting or, or talking to somebody, I'll sit on the couch and watch the same like big bang shows. It's not like I'm really watching them as much because I'm usually like returning messages or something, but kind of that habit. Yeah. It's very like, I noticed that it is that kind of similar to what you're thinking. Like just kind of the same. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Routine. yeah. It's just, as that because it's interesting to me where these things happen and where they don't. Right. Cause I like, I'm not a gambler um, particularly. I will occasionally, um, but it, you know, it's not really, it's not an important part of my life. Um, but I do, and I'm not a superstitious person at all. I'm a scientist by training, right? That's what I get paid to do. But, you know, I was I was in um, DC a couple of weeks ago doing a, a filming for a TV show, which I was very nervous about. And I like wore my lucky socks, which are these little socks I have with bees on them, which are the ones socks I was wearing when I got married, which was 10 years ago now. But I almost never, they're not like ratty because I almost never wear them. I wear them like once a year if something really so when I defended my dissertation I was wearing my lucky socks like I, I will wear my lucky socks for very important moments in my life um but it's it's interesting because everybody or I don't know like most people have parts of themselves that are ritualistic and, and parts of themselves that are you know believe in luck or or you know um put more credence into those things and then um but it doesn't for me it doesn't come out in, in my relationship with gambling at all. Um, but I, I don't know, these are the kinds of things that as I, as I work through and listen to you and listen to more folks in recovery, tell their stories that, that just more questions come up with how does this all overlap and how does it affect all of us? And I'm from a, from a kind of behavioral health you know, perspective, what can we do to give people more tools or more opportunities or more insight or anything we can possibly do um, to improve outcomes for the folks that, that entrust us with their care? Yeah. And I think it's great that there's people like you asking those questions and listening, uh, to those stories for that specific reason. Um, I think another thing too, this kind of ties into it is it talks here about, um, you know, behavioral patterns and, and, um, something that was readily 
observed among these players were the they constantly count their money and sort their money. This was another behavior I had while gambling. Um, and I even to this day, like I have now that I'm I feel safe with cash. Um, I have like like cash envelopes. That's kind of like that I I use for like saving and and doing some things for the broker uh, society hope fund. Like I just kind of will stash in the beginning of my recovery, I would stash like any extra ones or anything I had into this jar. And I, it was called the hope fund. And instead of every time I thought about gambling, I would take that hope fund money and I would do something good with it. And that's kind of helped me in the beginning, but now it's like, that's kind of how I still sort my money in the aspect of like, okay, this is money. I kind of, kind of switched my addiction early on to spending um, because just the thought of having money in my account triggered me, which is, is odd. Um, So I I caught myself spending. I like shoes very much. Anybody that knows me or listens to me knows this. Um, So I've kind of started to have to like little save money for, for things like that. And so, yes, like even in my, my notebook right here, I've got like five different envelopes and I sort my money as like how I'm going, like my extra money, like how I'm going to spend it and how I'm going to use it. And even when I was a gambler, I would sort, like if I won, like I'd put this back for bills. Like, this is what I need to catch up on. This is what I can spend. And this is, you know, what I'm absolutely bottom line leaving with never worked out like that, especially towards the end. But I was definitely, I would just sit there. I would go to the bathroom and count my money and like, make sure it was all folded the same way and like in different compartments. And so I found that really interesting too. And I think probably a lot of, a lot of gamblers would say the same thing on that. Um, And it says here also, there is an unusual amount of eating, drinking, smoking around the gambling tables. I'm not, I I was kind of the opposite. I didn't eat or drink uh, when I gambled. I didn't take care of myself very well when I gambled or if I did, it was like crap food, you know, like bag of chips or something. Um, but my mom, when she was gambling with me, she was a smoker. She'd smoke 10 times more when she was at the casino. And it always really, really concerned me. Um, are you, are you seeing a lot of that in comparison in, in some of your studies? Like, Oh yeah. Well, so, so in the broad strokes of gambling disorder research, um, we're kind of, I don't know, 25 years behind drugs and alcohol, um, which actually, you know, isn't great, but you know, we're, we're about 15 years ahead of video games. So, you know, we got that going for us. Um, and I, I, you know, we're ahead of, we're ahead of sex, we're ahead of, um, pornography, we're ahead of shopping. So I don't know, you know, we're not doing so bad. We're like, uh, you know, we're in third place, I would say. Um, although if you count all the drugs, then, you know, we kind of go way far behind. Um, but there are a few things that are, consistent findings across enough space and time that I actually feel good about them. Um, and it's very hard to make me feel good when it comes to science. I'd really like to, you know, I like to see tens or, or, you know, dozens, if I can, of versions of the same finding over and over again in different populations at different time periods with men and women, older folks and younger folks, different states, different countries, right? But one of those things is the comorbidities, right? And this is, um, what I like to say is gambling disorder rarely travels alone. So about 95% of folks, that's too high, right? 
No, that's right. 95% of folks with gambling disorder have, I just sort of started automatically and then <laughs> it was like, that's not right. Then I was like, oh, I, I, you know. It seems yeah, like I'll, such I'll, a high number. I know it's crazy. Um, I, I heard myself say it and go, that can't be right. But it is right. 95% of folks with gambling disorder have another, um, what we would call comorbid condition. So another mental health condition um, that they have at the same time. And about 75% of folks have four or more total mental health conditions. So that's, you know, that's an extraordinarily high number of folks with four or more conditions happening at the same time. And again, as we think about this, so if you think about this as a treatment provider or, or like me as a person who works at a behavioral health clinic, um, most of the folks who walk through your door with gambling disorder are gonna have at least three other things that are also happening at the same time. And that makes the work very complex. Um, it, there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of things happening. It makes um, diagnosing difficult. It, it makes treatment more complex. It, pretty much everything is more difficult um, when you're dealing with, with higher levels of comorbidity. So when we read, um, so when you say, you know, smoking, you know, smoking at the same time or somebody eating at the same time or drinking at the same time or, you know, or, 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 right, or shopping or whatever other thing, it's not surprising. It's actually, that's not the, you know, that's not the exception. That's the rule the, the majority of folks, um, that would be their experience. And, uh, you know, it's not just addictive behaviors. It's also um, anxiety disorder, uh, PTSD, depression, um, traumatic brain injury. Um, it's, it's, I guess, bipolar disorder, although that gets a little bit um, technical. Um, so there are all kinds of these uh, psychiatric disorders that are happening at the same time in the same people. And that's your experience. Yeah, I think for me, um, I think I probably, I never really had a good relationship with money to begin with. And then I think I always kind of had a spending issue before gambling took hold, but I still felt like I was, had some kind of responsibility. Like I was a responsible person when it came to finances before my gambling really took a turn for the worse. Um, which is why I'm always like with the responsible gambling term, I'm like, well, we were kind of all responsible till we weren't right. Um, but for me, and then, so when I did step out of the gambling, um, like I said, the spending did kind of show up for me and I was trying to think a lot of anxiety for sure. Um, but I've always kind of dealt with that too. Um, I don't, I don't really feel like I dealt with a lot of depression, but, um, I don't really know, I guess I can't self-diagnose myself on that, but, um, definitely anxiety, definitely, um, I think spending was probably always an issue. And then it just kind of amped up. I, you know, I kind of had like, it was just triggering having actually having money in my account. And for some reason it, it caused me to spend more. And I did spend too, whenever I was gambling, like if I had a big win, um, I instantly would spend, you know, um, maybe not necessarily on things that I needed to spend it on just like <laughs> shoes. Um, but so I see that, but I see that a lot too, showing up in different forms in women. Like I see it showing up, um, sometimes, sometimes in a se sexual aspect, you know, it like kind of ramps that up for them or, um, just things that a lot of people don't talk about, you know, kind of those little taboo things. Um, I've seen it, I've seen it show up in overeating, especially like, like a lot of women I talk to are struggling with, mm. with overeating. Um, I struggled with sugar, but I don't know. 
but not really in like an overeating capacity, just that I'm a diabetic and I shouldn't be having sugar capacity. Um, do you, have there been a lot of studies on this for women based, you know, when it comes to, to co comorbidity? Mm. Yeah, no, not, um, so there have been women, so this is a distinction, right? There have been women included in a lot of the studies, which is not the same as saying there have been a lot of studies on women. There really have not been a lot of studies on women because, so if you were to design a study from scratch, which really is quite a hassle, but you know, we do have to do it. Uh, it's part of the job. Um, when you start from scratch, you start to think about what is important. What am I trying to find out? What questions are we going to ask? Usually you're using a preset scale um, I don't know who you were, you know, looking or who you were talking to, who's using these morality questions in 2021, but that's not. Um, yeah. I'd like to know their name too. That would not be included in any of the modern instruments I'm familiar with. Although I, I had a meeting today and somebody, you know, some very well-respected group was using the, the South Oaks gambling screen, the SOGS, which I love. And it was amazing in 1987 when it was created. But again, it was created in 1987. So we got to get, I think I said, I saw, I got a little bit of side eye for this, but I said, um, you know, we need to get you into this millennium um, if we could, which is maybe not the right thing to say, but I did say that. Um, so hopefully folks are using, using modern measures, but um, it's, it's interesting because we do see, there are study, a lot of studies that have women as part of the samples but not really, I wouldn't say work that focuses on women that really takes um, the perspectives of women or centers women um, as part of um, in the design of the study in such a way that you could get particular insight. It's kind of like, it's more like, oh, and women too, rather than what is, and so, you know, there, there aren't questions specific to women. Um, there aren't uh, focus on women. I mean, there are there are some folks doing this work. I don't want to say there's nobody and there's nothing, but um, there's not very much. There's certainly not enough to make me happy with the state of things. Um, and I would really, I mean, that's one of the ways, that's one of the places. I mean, I'm, I, I, I've got I've got to be careful about what I talk about with um, some of the research, but I would like to see fewer of the same type of study over and over and over again, finding the same thing, and more folks really digging into um, the, the myriad of questions that have not been properly answered, not even been properly conceptualized. I would love to see one of, you know, I'd love to see a state instead of doing the same, you know, prevalence study that they do every two years forever and always find the same number using the same methods. I'd love to see them take that money and say, you know, we're gonna do, you know, we're gonna do the best version of, um, hearing from women uh, with gambling disorder that we can do. Um, but the thing is that, you know, folks like to do, it's much easier to do what's already been done. It's very difficult to do what no one's done. And it's very, um, it's easy for it to go wrong. Uh, and it's easy to look bad and people are afraid or, you know, people are self-protective right. or people are not creative or people are bored with their jobs and just doing the same thing where, you know, there's a million different reasons to not take on something this difficult um, but it's so important that I really wish, um, I really wish there was more of it. And, you know, as the, I'm the executive director of a, of a group that funds research. So um, I haven't funded it either. Right. So I need to be, I need to take my part of that responsibility, but it is something I'm interested in doing. And um, conversations like this, I think are the first step towards 
um, you know, to, towards taking a, taking this, um, really giving it the focus that it needs and taking the money, the pro, you know, there isn't enough money for anybody to do what they really want. And so everybody is struggling. It's not like there's, you know, plenty of money for this, but it, you know, it's worth it. It's worth it to take some of the money we do have and really focus on this. And I hope that when we start doing this, we can come back, uh, come back and talk to you about it and get some ideas and just do some brainstorming. Um, we, I'd love to have, you know, a group of, of women that you're familiar with be a place. It would be great to have a, a starting point for, you know, what are the questions we should be asking? What are the, the measures that should be included that are specific to, uh, to women in this space? But, you know, it's frustrating. And I understand what you're saying is because the federal government does not allot money for gambling resource. And, and those kind of things, which is something hopefully will change in the future. And that's something that needs to change in the future so that, that you can fund re- you know, research like this so that it can help us um, further this movement, because it is so important. Like, I don't ever want to like downsize when I was talking about, you know, how everybody's on the sports betting kick right now. And, 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 you know, male gambling definitely takes a lead when it comes to those kind of studies and those kind of research. Um, it's, it is just so important to bring the women into this and, and to really, because there are things that women, you know, like we talked about this, I, I don't know if it was recorded or not on the bet free life, but talking about, you know, women's cycles, right. And the hormonal ranges and things like that. There's, there's so much that could be added into, um, a study for women that could really, really help us address this problem and, and help women sooner and in such a better capacity than we're doing right now, because there's so many women who are just, who are just being left behind, uh, because the help, the resources, um, they're just not available. The understanding isn't available. Um, I talked to in the last 10 days, I've talked to five different women who their states have failed them in some capacity to get the help that they need. And these are states who are funded to provide this help, right? I've got a woman who's been waiting two weeks for a callback. And she's, I messaged her yesterday. I'm like, Hey, have you heard anything? And she was like, I was in the casino when you messaged me, I haven't heard anything. And I'm frustrated and, you know, it's just like, we could just do better. There's so many ways that we could do better. And I appreciate the fact that you're willing to have this conversation with me, that you're willing to come on the podcast and just chit chat with me about gambling facts and, and just, yeah, be open to it. Yeah. And that's, so the Cambridge behavioral health side that's one of the things that they're responding to is all these folks who, you know, are on a waiting list or waiting for a callback or, you know, somebody they called and talked to somebody and their name got written down and put in a list somewhere. And maybe somebody will call them when they get the chance or not. And that was part of, part of the thinking with telehealth was that the, the moment when somebody is reaching out for help is so short. Um, you know, it might be 15 minutes for somebody, it might be 10 minutes. And it's like, you know, if 30 minutes pass, then they've thought of, um, you know, thought of a, a way to get another couple hundred bucks to make up, you know, make it to the end of the week. And then, you know, I don't really need help. I can keep going like this. It's not that bad. So that that window where help is possible is so narrow that that was one of the, the things we thought about with telehealth was if someone reaches out in that window, 
how quickly can we get, you know, how quickly can we get them talking to a live person on their phone who can help them? And the the truth is that um, at scale, it could be it could be minutes, right? Because you can have people all the way from so in America, you can have people all the way from Hawaii to Maine, covering essentially covering twenty four hours. Uh, because we are such a you know such a large country, we can do that. Where you can have somebody working at fairly normal hours and and still cover out every hour of the day. And these are the types of goals, um, types of goals that we're we're going after. I also wanted to say that I think the I don't think I've ever seen a study that included menstrual cycle data or information in gambling and gambling disorder. I think that's completely novel. Um, so hopefully somebody will pick it up and run with it. Um, but it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I guess the, the last thing is that, you know, the, the, the place where you start with a lot of research is, is one person's experience or, or the, a group of folks experience. And it's not, it's not lesser than it's not, you know, not valuable. It's very valuable. You know, the first time, the first time anybody in the peer reviewed work learned about AIDS came from a case series. It was published in the, in the MMWR, which is read by doctors all over the country. And it was, it was just a doctor in, uh, you know, I'm going to get the facts wrong, aren't I? I think it was in San Francisco. It was a doctor in San Francisco, or maybe it was LA. I think it was a doctor in LA who said, you know, I've had, you know, five gay men die of this same really strange, um, very, very rare condition in the past four or five weeks. And it makes no sense. It there's, I can't see a connection, but it's all these sort of young gay men in this city dying of this very strange disease. And he just put it out there into the, the peer reviewed lit and it went nationwide. And then, you know, doctors in um, San Francisco and New York and Miami all said, man, we're seeing the same thing. We're seeing the same very weird thing. And that was the first time AIDS, um, was ever discussed in the peer-reviewed literature. And it was a case series. So it was just one doctor in one city saying, I'm seeing this strange thing. I wonder if anybody else is. And it, it of course became, you know, you know, decades of research and billions of dollars and, and millions of lives saved all over the world. So it, it really does start um, in some cases just with one person writing down something that they're seeing that has never been described before. You know, from the very beginning, um... I think it was, I was doing an interview with Stacey Goodwin, who is, is really well known in the UK for her advocacy and gambling. And, um, she kind of had brought it up to me. Um, so I can't take, you know, the credit for, for thinking about this because she brought it up to me and it just was like, well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I'm really surprised that people don't talk about it. I really am. And it, it makes a lot of sense why sometimes, women have a hard time. Sometimes it, it seems like men can gain ground easier in recovery um, than women. It would make, it makes a lot of sense why some women have a hard time gaining 30 days, you know, and stuff like that. So it's definitely a con conversation that I'm really surprised isn't talked about, um, you know, at this point in 2022, you know, when, when people are talking about all kinds of taboo things or, or, you know, should it even be taboo? It shouldn't even be taboo. It should be just something that's talked about, uh, just like gambling addiction. So again, Dr. Nathan Smith, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate you so much and your time. I appreciate your time.
Thanks for having me, Christina. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Dr. Nathan Smith from the Cambridge Research Institute, uh, which is connected to Cambridge Behavioral Health Services, who offers teletherapy and other services for gambling harm. Uh, you can reach them at kimebridge.com. You know, talking helps. So therapy is a great tool for recovery.